श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय मॉर्निंग एवरीवन Nice to be here with you all, and um, I like place the Bhagavad Gita before, between us here. <laughs> we may partake of its uh, essential teaching, in as much as I was told that a couple of things about our group here. That um, first of all, uh, I should speak about the journey within. This is kind of the title of the talk, right? Journey within. So, um, journey. Any journeys, we probably do well to have a map for. And so, the sacred texts—they actually provide a, a veritable map for such a journey, and of them. Bhagavad Gita is quite a, a prominent uh, text, and on the basis of this, and also, a Gopi mentioned to me last night that uh, most of her uh, students here had studied at least part of a book called "Readings in Vedic Literature." That uh, that has some type of an introduction to it's quite an old book, but to, to the idea that there are such sacred text, not that you're not familiar with with that, but what some of them are and maybe what some of them emphasize and so on and so forth. So a little bit about the sacred text this morning may be in order. And I'll cite a verse here from the Gita where the same is said. Bahuda Gitam Chandubi so this is the 13th chapter of the Gita. The, the subject is quite uh, uh, metaphysical and complex. The Gita is divided into three sections of 18 chapters, so 6, 6, and 6. The first six are kind of a psychological, um, the psychology of yoga, if you will. And... Um, Various uh, disciplines of yoga are outlined there on a veritable kind of ladder hmm, of uh, developmental ladder wherein we we begin with selfless work, hmm, the result of which is the ingress of, of wisdom. So you have a work yoga and then a, a knowledge yoga. And with the cultivation of that, we come to a dhyan, astanga yoga, which you're probably familiar with, if not learning. Here, uh, in the chapter, the section ends with, concludes with that sixth chapter, astanga yoga, which brings in, of course, meditation and the cultivation of uh, that ingress of wisdom that uh, we're able to uh, cultivate in sitting as a result of having walked 
appropriately, if you will, walked in the world and acted um, selflessly or with a cultivation of acting without attachment to the fruits of one's labor, so to speak. So proper walking allows for proper sitting. Uh, Obviously, if we have too many desires, it's difficult to sit. (laughs) That's why we move in one sense. Although there may be another kind of movement that's not based on want, but a necessity nonetheless, a necessity to move out of ecstasy, that is another thing. That we call lila. But a necessity to move out of, out of a sense of lacking, that is a movement in the world that is counterproductive, that, bring, that brings with it reactions that, um, I want to say, tie us to the world that much more. Hmm? It's like borrowing money, you get, you owe plus, hmm? plus interest and so forth. So, so the first six chapters and the middle six chapters are the theology, largely, of the Gita. While in the first six chapters, uh, Tvam, in the famous Upanishadic dictum, Tattvam Masi, have you heard it? Tattvam Masi, Tat and Tvam. Tat, Tvam means you, so you, Tattvam Masi, you are that whatever that is. So the you, the twum, is dealt with in the first six chapters. And the, the, the tut, the that, without the age, tut, tut twum, I see. What we are, what is the, uh, you are that. So what is the that? That is described in the middle six chapters. And we find it's on the basis of the Gita that which we are, hmm, is kind of a very dynamic union, if you will, between subject and object, or really subject and super-subject. What I mean by that is that we have an objective world of things and forces and so forth, physical forces and whatnot, and then we have a subjective world of conscious experience and seated at, uh, firmly there is the conscious experiencer. Hmm? Um, and so from that point of view, as the conscious experiencer, the, 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 the real thinker is not the mind, the seer is not the eyes, the hearer is not the ears, but the mind and the eyes and the ears get in the way of our thinking, seeing, and hearing. We are the thinker, we are the hearer, we are the experiencer. Hmm. Uh, and so forth. So, in that sense, we are the subject and matter is the object that we lend meaning to. We animate the inanimate world, so to speak, and bring it to life and give it meaning as much as a driver gives meaning to the to what what otherwise would be just a bunch of metal and rubber and uh, and so on. Right? It becomes a car only as much as there is a driver hmm, to, uh, to make it such. Hmm. So, in this sense, we are the subject and matter, if you will, is the objective world. 
But when we, and we utilize matter for our purposes, unfortunately we are identified with matter and we think our purpose is material. <laughs> so we use things um, in such a way that we lose sight of ourselves. And we become identified with the world and we think we're going to die, among other things. We have, we're, we're under some uh, trepidation in the way that we live, some anxiety. Hmm? This is the root of it. So, at the same time, the Gita teaches in the first six chapters about that tuam, about that you, that subjective you. When it starts to speak about the that, well, that that we are, it's trying to say you are su subject and you have a relationship with the super subject. So if I look down, it's objective. If I look at myself, I'm the subject. If I look up, there's a super subject. Hmm? I might be a ray, but I'm not the sun. I may be a spark, but I'm not the fire. Something like that. And that's why we, I, we all find ourselves to one extent or another thinking that we might be extinguished. We, know we won't be, but we're so small that in the face of the vastness of the world and samsara, it might appear that we might be uh, devoured. Hmm? We might die. Hmm? But of course, as I was saying last night, that subjective self that we are, consciousness, it is so different from matter. Matter only matters because of it. It's so different from, there's nothing, I mean to say, in the world that remotely compares in the objective world to Consciousness. By consciousness, I mean experiential reality. Matter doesn't experience things. We do. You can't, no matter how many physical things you put together, you're not going to get experience. We look in the brain. I don't, but some people do. And they try to find the center of experience that's not going to be found there. That which generate that part of matter that becomes experiential suddenly out of non-experience don't ex don't look for experience to come hmm? and to re attempt to reduce experiential reality to the experienced hmm? this is is a folly hmm? in other words to say that matter uh, the consciousness can be reduced to a brain which requires consciousness to do such a reduction a conscious reduction is all it would be, <laughs> is, is, is a, a bit of a um, backwards thinking, illogical thinking. So, at any rate, this subjective self, consciousness that the Gita says you are, is the beginning in the first six chapters, explanation of what we are. But when it says you are that, so what does that mean? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. How can you be that? Hmm? So that is the theological section of the Gita. And it's saying that you are God in sense of you are the same quality, so to speak. You're like the spark is, a, is a similar to the, to the fire. Hmm? There's a difference, too. And um, so then a type of unity with that is described, that's what we call bhakti. Hmm? 
how to forge that unity uh, between ourselves and that that really make us that so to speak just like if I say Robert and I are one right this is you and I are one I mean nobody thinks that I became him and he became me the two of us disappeared in that if you and I become one what do we call it we so that's a unity but it's a I want to say it's a dynamic unity rather than the static unity of, of doing away with everybody else in the name of unity you follow me in music we don't find that we find that many notes playing the same song which we call harmony for example is a meaningful unity compared to one note only everybody here is playing a different note I mean in the world hopefully we're on the same note here or we're in harmony at least <laughs> something like that so uh, playing different notes and they're not in harmony that's uh, that's a problem hmm? but in the name of unity to do away with the many notes and all just play one note might get a little um, monotonous something like that which is varieties the spice of life so is there a possibility of a spiritual variety hmm? It doesn't compromise the unity that we sense is at the core of, of reality. And this is what the, the second then six chapters are describing hmm? in bhakti. Hmm? Bhakti is a union with, with that, with Bhagwan, hmm? that, uh, that uh, fosters uh, a variety. And love, of course, is... Uh, is full of variety. It's it's not a still uh, affair. It's a, it's. I've said often that we move in the world. We cannot rest until we find love. We're moving to find love. When you find it, you only can pause for a moment. Ah, and then it has a circle of its own that it starts. We have to move within. Hmm? The ups and downs of love and relationships are well known to most people, <laughs> but we don't want to get off that. Um, merry go round, so it's, it's a merry <laughs> go round, but it's not always merry. <laughs> I mean, materially speaking, but we don't want to get off hmm? because we want that. Uh, we want love, and love is, implies some some movement. It's reciprocal. Hmm? There have to be two, and the two have to be one, and all this becomes very Zen, if you will. Hmm? Um, so, uh, the second six chapters anyway are about the, the object or the super subject hmm, of love, the tat. And so, this, the last six chapters where this verse comes from is then going back and looking at the underlying metaphysical truths that have been touched on in the first 12 chapters and developing them and playing them out a little bit. And so here in the 13th chapter, there's the description of the field, the, the metaphorical field, and the knower of the field, the chetra, chetragya, the body it means, and the knower of the body, what is matter, what is consciousness, and so forth. Understanding these things are part of loving in as much as our loving, in a yogic sense, is a wise loving. Hmm. So... So here, anyway, very just briefly, he, he says that um, 
what I'm going to teach about here, these things. It's been sung about, he says, Rishibhya Bahuda Gitam. So Gita means sing. So it's been sung about by different rishis. Chandogya Vidayaprithak. Chandogya means, as a reference to the Upanishads. Chandogya Upanishad. It's there, mentioned in the hymns there, of the Upanishad. Brahma Sutra Padas Jaiva. And it's reasoned about in the Brahma Sutras. And, and, and uh, replete with conclusive knowledge. The Brahma Sutras are those that try to tie together all these sounds of the sacred sounds and seem to be talking sometimes about diverse things and different ways and show how they're all in concordance. They're all speaking to us, all saying the same thing. So my point here uh, with a lengthy introduction is that the Gita is itself, which is a sacred text, tells us that it's going to speak about things that have um, that have representation that are represented in the, in the other sacred texts that it's drawing from, and so there is a whole body of such sacred wisdom that all kind of works together and so forth, and and um, should be referenced and whatnot that we might in spiritual circles have credibility when we make a point. You know, we want to kind of move from a in our spiritual pursuits from a kind of a flaky, you know, spiritual, new age, sometimes the term is used, idea of spirituality to one that's well grounded in, in reason, even while it transcends reason, even while it is transrational, ultimately, how a transrational idea itself is quite reasonable and, and, uh, uh, and, and meaningful to pursue, most meaningful. Hmm? where reasoning fails, and so forth. Uh, so our spirituality should have some kind of uh, rational uh, basis to it, as I say, even while reason has its, uh, it, its shortcomings. This is what the sacred texts help us to do, and they help to ground us um, in our practice very much because they corner us, so to speak, and make it difficult for the mind to go elsewhere or to pursue interests that come on the mind because they, in such a pressing way, they speak with urgency about that which is really essential to us in human society. And similarly, they speak about the world in a very essential way. I mean, you can read the newspaper, I mean, or you can read on the, online any number of newspapers whatever, the news of the world, politically what's going on, scientifically what's going on in terms of discovery and speculation and so forth. And uh, uh, in so many areas, right, you have access to so much information about the world. And it might be thought that, that by the practice of yoga in a serious sense, uh, we might lose out on something, you know, that's going on in the world. The world always, especially the cities and metropolises, lend to this feeling like something's just about to happen that's going to be different <laughs> and it's 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 worth waiting for I, I should check my email you know <laughs> maybe it happened uh, maybe it's a cataclysmic event or you know something but something something's about to happen it's a big carrot if you will that that some that by some arrangement within the world the objective world something's going to happen that has really profound meaning for me, a resident of the, subje of, 
of the subjective world, uh, in, in embodiment I am of the subjective world. This is so much more important world, the subjective world. Me, us, consciousness, the experiencer, is so much more important than, than the world of experience. Hmm? Um, so, still, identified as we are with matter, thinking, for example, egoically in a conventional sense of self way. I'm American, I'm Indian, I'm male or female and so forth. Uh, with this type of identification with the passing uh, mixing of, of, of matter, so to speak, I'm looking at matter for my real interest, finding, looking for something meaningful. And I was just, there's this kind of carrot or appetizer that, 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 or promissory note that's just about to happen. We, we kind of knowingly or unknowingly live our lives somewhat like this. It's really false, but it's a powerful draw. Hmm? And so it gets in the way of the kind of practice that will enable us to really get something out of yoga more than um, some of the, some of the um, superficial, I would say, byproducts of yoga, like a healthier material life, <laughs> a, you know, a more a, a better ability to socially integrate or be psychologically balanced. And I don't mean to say that those things are unimportant, but they have relative importance. Hmm? They should be part of and, and come along with pursuit of which is really essential. Hmm? And, uh, but they should not be performed as a means, as it ends unto them, themselves. We'd be left empty-handed at the end, hmm? no matter how well balanced we were. <laughs> we'll be taken off balance. So uh, as to what I am when the whole thing ends, and I'm totally, perfectly politically correct, and, and everything else, <laughs> it's not enough. Hmm? So the more of that. So to be, to be pursue yoga in such a way that we can get that more. I mean, you know, you come and you sit, and we do yoga for a while, and some people sit for a long time, for as long as you've lived. You have to think, there's something there. There's something they're getting out of that. They're getting themselves out of that. And in, in getting themselves, they're dismantling the, the sangskaras, the tendencies, the vasanas, the desires, and so forth, that make up that false sense of self. We are, materially speaking, a bundle of desires. In other words, my car, my house, my country is me. My family, my body, my mind, my intelligence. There's two, two, little, two little, little, little letters, M, Y, make a huge, a big uh, problem. Hmm? When in fact, nothing is ours. And the sun is telling us that every day, Poetry, but it's real. It says, with the rising and the setting of the sun, Ayur, like in Ayurveda, life, Ayur Harati. Life is being Harati, taken away. The word Hari is a name for God. It means who takes away. 
ultimately, who takes away your heart, means to steal, steals your heart, ultimately. But he does it in a very interesting way, by, in the form of time, by stealing everything else from us. That is really stealing our heart. Do you understand? Because those things are in our heart. First he cleans the heart, then he steals the heart. Very kind. He goes into the heart like a sweeper. Sweep everything out. This Nam, Nam, Krishna Nam, for example, goes into the heart like a sweeper. Cleanses everything out and then captures the heart. He leaves, the only, leaves only himself there for us to see. And so charming. What a more beautiful idea. A life of giving rather than a life of acquisition and taking and, uh, and, and all the repercussions that come with that. A life of giving, no repercussions. Giving is the getting. Hmm? This is bhakti. So nice. So, yogi sitting, I've been practicing for 40 years, so some people may sit for 40 years. In the bhakti yoga, we don't sit as much. So this is bhakti yoga, what, I'm, what we're doing now, you and I. Shravanam, kirtanam, hearing, chanting. But anyway, some people, just to use an example, because you come and sit, sit for 40 years. How can I sit there? Hmm? There's a, that yoga and the dhyan, the meditation, is dis, dismantling all these desires, these sangskars, that by the force of the meditation, they're unraveling. And so this sense of I, based on my, is seen for what it is. It unravels, and what we really are comes to bear. And it's so attractive hmm, that you could just sit and be. Hmm. Hmm. Of course, in bhakti, in, in, in some forms of yoga, people, the, the siddhas, the perfected uh, uh, practitioners, they love to be. I just love to be. But we be to love <laughs> in bhakti. Some people love to exist. We exist to love. So it's a little bit of a different yoga, but and powerful yoga, and the kind of yoga that's really advocated primarily in the Gita. Hmm? But the point here I'm making is that hearing these kind of things from the text, it helps to corner us, so to speak, so that it makes it difficult for us to continue to, to think or to bite into the, the, the idea that something is going to happen in the objective world that's really worth paying attention to. Hmm? Over my practice, for example. Because to be really successful in, in this practice, in the full sense of the term, there's so much to be mined, if you will. Hmm? So much depth to be of, this, of the self to be mined, such riches there. Hmm? That if you really pay attention and with good sangha, with good association and so forth. You become cornered, it's difficult, like I said, it's what helps us in this way. The study of the Gita, it helps us. It makes it difficult for us to, to turn towards the world and, 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 and continue to be enamored by the reflective glare, really, uh, where nothing really happens. It's not really illuminating. Hmm? It's really darkness. And really the same thing happens over and over again. That's all. Sometimes the example is given of a prostitute. She or he has only one thing to offer to uh, the client. 
but dresses in a different outfit every day. Looks like something different. And another client is attracted, or the same one, but it's the same thing over and over again. Hmm? This is material life. No matter how you mix it, the, the atoms together and so forth, hmm? you never get anything as exciting as experience itself. So, the texts have, uh, like a map, if you will. They're an interior map, and they're also an exterior map. In other words, they reflect on the journey within directly and speak about it, and also indirectly by way of speaking about the outward journey into the world of matter and the futility of that, the emptiness of that the dead-endness of that. On the one side, the inner journey, and it has no end, no limit. The other side, the material journey, is one dead-end street after another. Hmm? And it very beautifully speaks about it. So what I want to say with regard to the objective world is that the texts speak about it in an essential way. Yes, they don't talk about it in a detailed way, the way, for example, modern science might talk about the world. And the Higgs boson, the God particle has been found, and these type of things, and, 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 or in a biological sense, and uh, in, in, in any great detail, where there might be a debate about evolution or not. Or it, doesn't, it doesn't bother with all this. Um, and I don't think I don't mean to say those things aren't relatively important and have value for us in, in human society and so forth. But in an essential, in ultimate spiritual sense, it talks about the material world in some detail, but it's summed up in one word, two syllables. My again, but Maya. <laughs> you might know the term Maya. It means Maya means Maya means a lot of things, but it means to measure. You see, we measure the objective world, and we know it, right? We measure how long it takes to get to the, how many light years it takes to get to this planet, and so forth, all these fascinating measurements, and how, it, how to go to the moon, and, and how to do whatever. Hmm? Measurement, math, is a, is a language for uh, uh, measurement, uh, description through, through measurement. And, it, and that is a kind of a, a, a language that lends to controlling. I'm in control, measuring things, and bringing within my, the fist of my, my knowing hmm, to use for my purpose and so forth. Hmm? But the idea in the text of using this word maya to describe the material existence is, is to say that because maya means to measure and also means that which is not. It means you can't measure it. Measuring it is the, is, the illu- is the illusion that you can grasp the whole thing and conquer it and so forth. It, even the material, even matter, eludes our grasp. What to speak of ourself, the measurer? How can you measure the measurer? How can you define something that there's nothing to compare it to? There's nothing in matter that compares to consciousness. Definitions are done by comparison. You cannot define it. You cannot measure it. For that matter, you cannot even measure the objective world. One time, you know, we're living fine, thinking the world 
everything orbits around the Earth. But then somebody figures out, wait a minute, the Earth's orbiting around, is it the Sun? Right? Around the Sun. Great finding, because we're not eating any better as a result of it. I mean, there are some good developments that have come from that, relatively speaking, but we could have gone on thinking it went around the Earth and, and not paid a lot of attention and pursued more important things, for example, through yoga, and it wouldn't have been, uh, we wouldn't have incurred a deficit as a result of it. And again, I'm not against relative improvements of the world and so forth, and certainly I even uh, use them in the context of bhakti when it's uh, appropriate. Mm, that would be there. So there's a place for that. Mm. Zero is a number that comes from India, you may know, historically that Einstein said, we owe a tribute to India because without zero, we couldn't do any science at all. Hmm? So, and these were the ancient Indians. They weren't without such knowledge, but they had a kind of a different perspective on it. Hmm? How to use science and technology to what, not at the cost of pursuing something more meaningful, the self. Hmm? So, so the text by becoming somewhat absorbed in them, acquainted with them, and so forth, this this map, if you will, hmm, um, will not be at the cost, at the loss of knowing what's going on in the world. Of course, you might be a little socially <laughs> less equipped to chit-chat about things that uh, make yourself sound like you're up-to-date <laughs> and so forth, however important you may think that is. I was very young when I decided, I was 22 years old when I decided to take a vow of silence. I'm 64 now. I said, all my friends, we get together, we just talk to hear ourselves talk. I thought, that's all we're really doing here. Nobody has anything to say. So I thought, I, talk, I stopped talking. Then I used to chant this mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, that I read on the back of a pack of incense. It was 1971. It said, chant this mantra and your life will be sublime. So I used to chant it in my head. And by that I met my guru and now I have something to talk about. Something like that. So, <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, the texts are very valuable, is the point. And, and they're old books, but they're speaking about an essential subject. Same time, they carry with them some old ideas, too, that have to be sorted out. They'll use, for example, examples to make a point, let's say from the natural world, that we, that we may demonstrate in science is not actually happening. You know, people thought about how nature worked in, in detail a little differently, at different times, and then we find out later, oh, it's like the example I gave. The sun is moving across the sky, Ayurharati killing everyone. In other words, it's taking away everyone's life, but it's rising and setting. Ayurharati vai pumsam yanasu. With the rising and the setting of the sun, everyone's duration of life is being taken away. You could say, this is an example of what I'm talking about, you could say, wait a minute, Swami, the sun isn't really moving like that. The earth is moving like this. You're wrong. I say, no, you're wrong. You're dying. That's what it's saying. <laughs> the verse is saying, you're dying. Ayurharati. Your life is being taken away. With every, with every, however you want to talk about it, with every 
circular movement of the earth or every movement of the sand. Poetically, it's saying, and poetry doesn't is not less accurate necessarily of a way of conveying truths than than math. Poetry is a participatory language. Poetry seeks to help us participate in life in the more the bigness in life that we sense is there, the more that we sense than what meets the eye happens to be reality. Poetry, the moon can have wings and fly across the sky and and so the sacred texts they lend themselves to poetry. They're speaking largely in poetry. Hmm? Uh, and it's a way of saying, we're going to talk to you, we're going to describe something that can't be described. And it's you. Hmm? You and the Godhead that is your source. Hmm? We cannot, it, it doesn't succumb to words which would be uh, very much uh, make it a limited thing, but nonetheless, there's not enough that can be said about it. We cannot say it all in words, but there's not enough, so we have to keep talking about it. Something like that. Hmm. So, this, these sacred texts, what I, what I want to say to you is that, is that they're really answering to a huge question. And the question is us. We are, human life is a question. The question is, why? You know, it's all fine until you're just like living on your own, so to speak. Uh. Ain't it funny how you feel when you know that life is real and you get that first, you know, it's a song. Um, Sugar Mountain. So, <laughs> you start thinking, I got to there's nobody taking care of me. It's up to me. It's like there's some pressure. I got to do something. How to figure an existential crisis is what I mean. We all undergo at some point uh, some existential crisis, and there's a why. Why am I? What am I going to do about it? And so forth. This occurs in human life. Hmm? The less complex forms of life are not asking the why question. They're asking how. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, for example, how to defend myself. And built into those species by nature is, is an answer to those questions. In other words, uh, all the, let's take the animals, the am, all the animal world, we all have some defense mechanism built into their system, whether it be the skunk's tail and smell or the, you know, the tiger's roar or something. It's all relative. You can't defend yourself, materially speaking, your sense of self, unlimitedly. That will die, aruharati, that's for sure. Hmm? But there's some system in how to eat. Most animals know what to eat. They know how to have sex, mate, and so forth, and, and, uh, and how, to, how to sleep. And so these answers to these how questions are provided by nature because the consciousness in less complex forms of life has not reached the point that it does in human life where it starts to think about itself. You see, what am I is not a question that nature can answer. How to eat, how to sleep in terms of my, the natural side of myself, nature can answer that. But what am I? Why? 
How can, they, how can nature answer a why question? Do you follow me? <laughs> there is no why in matter. I heard a debate some time ago between an atheist and a, and a theist, and the, 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 theist, the atheist said, there are no why questions, only how. The theist was saying that, you know, what, uh, the subjective reality is where we get, you know, why and value and so forth. Hmm? There's no value in matter. We give value, the subjective. So this fellow said, there are no why questions. And I replied, why do we have to listen to this? There are no why questions. You can say that, but, but you are a why question. Hmm? In human life, this why question is what presses us. We also have questions how. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, and how to defend ourselves. And you might wonder why we're more confused about it than the animals are. How to eat, huge issue. Hmm? How to mate, oh, <laughs> huge. <laughs> Why isn't it simple for us? The reason is because we're not really paying attention to the why question that, we're, that we should be most concerned with, which if we do pay attention to, the how questions fall into place very easily. Hmm? Very simply, if you, if, you, if you dismiss the why question, then you're left only with, with human intelligence and how questions. And so you become a huge animal, hmm? an animal you know, with, with intelligence for eating and taking. And in the animal life, the self is not to the point where it really, the more we find kind of a more complex form of life, the more we find in those complex forms of life, some semblance of, of giving. Hmm? The lower down in the chain we go, the less we find any voluntary action. The force of nature on consciousness in less complex forms of life down the chain is greater. And so they don't have the time to ask why. Hmm? Struggling. Jivo jiva sadivanam, as Darwin would say. One living being is food for another. Hmm? There's a struggle for existence, for our material existence, and you won't win. Hmm? You're not material. This comes to the fore, this sense in human life, it comes to the fore, and this should be addressed, it should be lived. Jibo, oh, what is that? It's such a nice statement. Hmm? I read this 40 years ago, I thought, oh. Yes. Jivo jivasya. Hmm. Life should be lived just for the purpose of pursuing the self. What is the self? Hmm. For inquiry into this, into the self. Not inquiry into how to get this material thing or that material thing. To meet the needs of this sense or that sense uh, uh, or the mind. It should be lived. Human life should be lived just for inquiry into into Brahman, Jibo Jivasya, the truth about the self, hmm? consciousness. That should, that's the purpose. And all these other things, they fall into place naturally. And they don't fall into place in human society because this has not become the pursuit. And if it is the pursuit of what am I, hmm? why am I, same idea, but that pursuit is, uh, is, is an objective methodology then it's a failed enterprise, do you understand? Because we are subjective. 
to make an objective enterprise methodology to, 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 to pursue what I am and to try to thereby reduce consciousness to matter. People are making an effort to do this philosophically, scientifically, and so forth. How will you ever understand that subjective side by an objective te te technology? We need a subjective methodology to understand the subjective. That's what yoga is. It's a subjective, objective methodology. Because you have to be a little objective to practice yoga. You have to be a little reasonable, a little wise. You have to practice some withdrawal, pratyahara, some detachment, some objectivity. When you step back from a thing, oh, you can see it for what it is. If you're too close and attached, you become implicated in the thing itself, and then you can't objectively analyze it and so forth. So much as science, for example, in, in, in a third-person objective methodology prides itself in objectivity. Hmm? Yoga prides itself in objectivity also. Hmm? You must be detached. You have to sit. Don't just do something. Sit there. Hmm? Uh, so, uh, and it's an analysis of the world. You know, what we're saying in yoga is this, really. There's a difference between consciousness and matter. And I'm going to prove it. This is, yoga is the experiment. And so we start to separate ourselves from matter. Hmm? For example, it's a vegetarian diet is very much advocated for yoga. Because ahimsa is one of the... You know, in Astanga Yoga, you have, you have your yama and niyama. Hmm? Ahimsa, brahmacharya, <laughs> these are parts of the limbs of Astanga Yoga. Hmm? Brahmacharya means celibacy, literally. So, or even if you want to call it responsible sexuality, to give a really creative definition, <laughs> still that means moving away from just animality, if you will, right? That means some detachment, some stepping back. Hmm? That means I'm looking at the thing for what it really is, and it's not all it was made out to be. And so uh, and it's not everything that I'm about. And so, so what I want to say here is that there is a large uh, element or factoring of detachment in the practice of yoga, and that is what we call objectivity. So there's objectivity to the subjective methodology of yoga, hmm? pursuing the self uh, within. Hmm? This again. So this is what uh, human life is for. This is the. This is this is the. This is what not nature has provided to answer the questions. Nature provides to answer the questions of the less complex forms of life: how to eat, how to sleep. It's built into their whole system. Hmm? But in human life, consciousness has risen to a point of thinking about itself. It's not that it's not there in animal life or plant life, but it hasn't gotten to the point of thinking about itself. In human life, this huge problem is, I'm thinking about myself. It's a huge problem. Hmm? And the Gita says, stop thinking about yourself. Be yourself. Hmm? Be yourself. Stop thinking about it. 
Mm. And here's how to do that. And so there's this system, a methodology, subjective methodology for pursuing the self. And the texts, really, therefore, what I want to say is that the sacred texts, they are an answer to the question that human life constitutes. It constitutes a question in and of itself. Why am I? And the, that is a subjective question, not an objective question. So it needs to be answered from somewhere other than nature. Nature, material world, the objective world, can't answer the subjective question. So that has to come from the other side, from the subjective source, the fire that we're the spark of, so to speak. It has to come from there. Hmm? That's why the sacred texts are referred to as revelation. Hmm? If God wants us to know about God, we could know. Otherwise, it would be difficult. Hmm? And God does. And such texts, penned, no doubt, by rishis and mystics and so forth, but penned on the basis of their inner subjective experience, their revelation. Hmm? And we find such concurrence amongst them, cross-culturally for that matter, amongst mystics. Sometimes uh, champions of atheism like to say that, oh, this religion is all subjective is in a pejorative sense. One guy says, God talked to me over here. Another one says, God talked to me over there. And they're fighting with one another, you know. Uh, and, so, and that's true. Hmm? But such manifestations of religious life are divorced from the heart of real religion and, 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 and spirituality. Hmm? Uh, mysticism, on the other hand, we, have, we can find mysticism in the Islamic faith, the Sufis, and in some in, in, in a Christian life, some saints and so forth. And India, of course, is full of them. Hinduism, full of mystics and experiencers and so forth. And frauds, too. But, but, um, but we find a, 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 a enormous amount of concurrence amongst the mystics in a basic sense about the nature of the self experienced in the context of deep spiritual discipline, which generically speaking means yoga. Hmm? And, and it conforms then with the texts and so forth. So um, the texts, I want to say, are an answer to the question that human life presents. Why am I? Keami kene jartapato. Why am I? Who am I? Why I have to suffer when I don't want to? These kind of questions. This requires something, an answer that nature can't give. Because the self is asking this question. The self isn't asking how to eat. The body's asking how to eat. The self isn't asking how to mate. The body's asking how to mate. The self is asking, well, who am I? I don't appear to be this body. Because the body appears to say that I'm not going to live forever, and I feel like I will. Or I should. Or I could do anything. In some species of life, they swim underneath the sea. Other species of life fly high in the sky. In human life, we think we should be able to fly high in the sky or go to the bottom of the sea or do anything else. Why? Because what's happening in human life is the self is coming out and it doesn't have those kind of restrictions. Fish are restricted to living the bottom of the sea because their bodies 
our aquatic bodies. Consciousness in an aquatic body, identified with an aquatic body, has to live under the sea. Consciousness identified with a bird body is going to fly in the sky. Consciousness identified with a human body is less identified with matter overall and more starting to be identified with itself and the questions that arise are coming from itself and it's starting to feel itself and it feels like I could do anything. I, I, I feel like I could, I could conquer death. Do you think the animals are trying to conquer death? But we are. We go about it in really rather foolish ways sometimes. Hmm? But yoga is a way that's not foolish. Hmm? Yoga is a way for ending death. Death is only a problem because we can't take things with us. Hmm? Including your sense of self, <laughs> materially speaking. But if you've lost that in the context of yoga, then what is the problem? Hmm? There's no problem. Death is a myth. Yes, there's a change. The body will transform and so forth. But death, that is a myth. Hmm? Such texts, they're meant to end this. Do they have currency, do you think? In a modern, is that a current issue? An issue that <laughs> is cutting edge or something that should be in the news? Yes. So the sacred texts, this is what they are. They're an answer to the question that human life presents itself. The soul, the self, the atma inquiring about itself in a sea of matter, feeling out of place, somewhat just not quite. If you feel like you just don't quite fit in, you might be starting to fit in hmm, where it really matters. Hmm? And there may be a teachable moment hmm, that hearing these things can just woof, go in. Instead of one ear and out the other, go in and go down and make a change in your life. Hmm? And then you can be the change that brings about a change in the world. So, in this way, if we want to make an inward journey, hmm, a map can be useful. Hmm? And the sacred text, the Gita is a very good example, serve as, as, as a very beautiful map. And of course, some, some, some guidance, maybe a navigator also, hmm, some teacher, this is very helpful. Because the book is a passive agent, if you will, of divinity. The book, you can read it, can't ask you. So, did you understand? Okay, but the teacher, the guru, can say, so did you understand? And you can say yes. And you say, well, let me hear that you understood. Hmm? This kind of aggressive pursuit of the student's understanding and our well-being, that is very much in our interest. That's very affectionate, if you will. Hmm? Guru is very affectionate. Guru is like, spiritually speaking, like the father, and the text is like the mother. And they never divorce. Hmm? They can produce very good children. <laughs> in a very happy family. Hmm? So, if in human life we get these things, we get human life, as we've already been discussing, that's very fortunate. It's a very, dif very different. A new question arises that hasn't arisen yet. Nature starts to realize, I've got a soul. Hmm? Wow, we're living in this time, human time. To put it on a bigger scale, that's exciting. Boredom is a sin if you understand what's happening to you. You're a human being now. And if in human life you get sadhusanga, 
association with saintly persons. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Kaoi, Lavamatra Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hai. Oh, that is very valuable. A moment of that would change the course of your life forever, whether you know it or not even. Hmm? A moment of that will set you in that direction. This is to come in touch with something entirely different hmm, than anything you've come in touch with. I mean, sadhu means, sadhu means like a saint. Sadhu means also to cut, to cut, like to cut attachments. He speaks or she speaks sometimes strongly. Forgive me if I appear to be doing so, but that's the important things to talk about. Hmm? Hmm. Uh, yoga should be for, ultimately, we should at least know, understand, yoga has much, much to offer. Hmm? It could consume myself entirely, hmm? and there'd be no loss, only gain. And human life is for this. If we get human life, and we get a sadhu sangha, in the sadhu sangha, in the assembly of saintly persons, where we gather to talk about, it means satsang also. Satsanga means, sat means real. Let's gather for sangha. Sangha means like a gathering association for discussing that which is real. Hmm? What is real? We will only discuss what is not real for the sake of understanding what is real. Hmm? So directly and indirectly, we'll talk about what is real. In that if we have some, develop some tendency for that kind of sangha in human life, in the context of that sangha at some point, we're going to meet some sadhu. Hmm? We think, yeah, that, that, that one is, the, I want to take some guidance there. I, I don't, it said, gurum avibhagat It is said in the Shastra, one must have a guru. Sounds like ominous, like, oh God, I gotta have a guru. But what it means is, I must have a guru. I must have her as my guru. I feel it in my heart, my prospect in connection with her or him that would be fulfilled. I, 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 that's this kind of must. Hmm? It's not a law, hmm? it's a law of love. Hmm? Because in Sadhu Sangha, this is what we. Because we, we, we may talk. For example, I may try to arrange my feelings, my experience, in logical words and appeal to your intellect that you're guiding your heart with. I don't know if I'll let that thought go in or not. And if, but if I'm successful, I can suspend your intellect. Hmm? And everything goes in. Hmm? And through the medium of the words, my experience is conveyed to you. And in a seed-like form and it starts to form a change in your life, a sangskar, a tendency to move in this direction. And then at a certain point, whoever is capable of doing that, they, persons think, I must follow that person. That this is a love affair. Hmm? Hmm? And then mother is always there, the sacred text and so forth the, as, as well. So these things, Hmm? Sadhu Sangha, Guru, Shastra, sacred texts, these are the really answering to the question of human life and they give us a map and a navigator, a guide, a captain to sail the ship of our spiritual prospect in our inward journey, the title of the subject this morning. Are there any questions?
Yes. Sure. Okay. Any questions? Yes. Uh-huh. Which part is savable? <laughs> because I had to be my body. Yeah, it can do both, relatively speaking. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. There's some, it can help you relatively, materially speaking, to move away from patterns of living and thinking and so forth that were very counterproductive. And in the context of that, it also is saving your, your real self, your higher self, so to speak, and tendering to that. And it's, it's helping, your, helping to facilitate your body, for example, and your mind and, and, and situate it in such a way that it will be help yourself. Because what the mind is, the Gita says, uh, what is that verse? The mind is the friend and the enemy as well. So if, if you can, if you can uh, train the mind in yoga, then it works for you rather than works against you. So it does both. Hmm? Both of your cells are saved. Uh, what about the false self? Does that get saved? Yeah, it's getting, it's getting saved. It's getting saved for later. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> the, false, <laughs> the false self is it, it's, it's gradually being dismantled. Do you, be, be, uh, because, uh, well, I have more control over yeah, 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 yeah. But the, the, but the very idea that it's a false self is, is coming to, to be apparent. Hmm? Oh, yeah, I, that's clear. That's so that's clear. progress. If you want to shoot somebody, hunt somebody, you have to know what they look like. So we're hunting, we're hunting the false ego, so you have to know what he looks like first. Did you get it? Put it in words? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think I understand your, your, your question. Um, first of all, uh, with regard to different, different disciplines, let's say, hmm? uh, there are 
there is a possibility for differences in as much as if we were to say the absolute was like a precious gem. Hmm? And so sometimes Krishna is compared to a gem, a blue sapphire. Hmm? Uh, and so uh, dark but giving light. So you could look at that from many different facets. You could look at one angle and say, it looks like this, and over here it looks like that, and so forth. So there are different disciplines for pursuing the jewel of the, the absolute, let's say, that may afford us a different perspective on that. However, amongst disciplines that are genuinely spiritual, there will at the same time be enough common ground that we can determine, oh yes, they're actually spiritual because they are ego-effacing. Hmm? So they're ego-effacing, that means they're extinguishing the false sense of self, and then they're perhaps experiencing with nuance the, the higher, the, the self and, and, and the source. And there's room for that. So that's, that's not a problem. Well, the problem is when you have a spiritual discipline, uh, so-called, that contradicts another one, but in its contradiction, it's really promoting, in the name of spirituality, some form of self-aggrandizement and, 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 uh, and, and rather than ego-effacing. So, for example, Buddhism is ego-effacing, ultimately. Hmm? Um, Gyan yoga is ego-effacing. Bhakti yoga is ego-effacing. Sufism is ego-effacing. Uh, so these are mystical you know, traditions. Hmm? That's one side of your question. You do have to, I think, distinguish between pseudo-spirituality and actual spirituality. And in actual spirituality, there should be some examples of the spirituality that we can really say, oh, here's a Rumi. Looks like it works. You know, here's a Jesus. Looks like it works when you do it right on, on that level, you know, so, so on and so forth. Hmm? Yeah, right. We, in other words, that there's some common ground, that we, but, but all the sacred text, whether it be from any tradition, are all kind of converging on a sacred ground, and then they're dancing on that sacred ground. So it's, there's some variety there. Hmm? But let's get the sacred ground you know, in place, and the profane ground, you know, we'll turn that under, something like that. So then, otherwise... Um, when I advocate the study of the books, I'm advocating the very the idea that that they provide a map. Hmm? But I also understand that they also uh, they can uh, lend themselves, if you will, or let us say the force of our intellect can be such that we can uh, do away with the benefit that they, the such texts seek to offer us by way of the converting it into just intellectual information. Someone can study the Gita, for example, and go around and give talks about the Gita, and everybody go, wow, he really knows the Gita. And so, but his life might be like, better not watch him when, you know, when nobody's around, kind of a thing. And so that person has kind of done an intellectual kind of a sleight of hand hmm, and, and just gathered information from the text and not really changed their life. Now. Uh, another thing that you're talking about, I think, is that, well, you know, you're reading the book and you want to say, well, what's really real? And the book may be saying this, but what's really real for me is to go and do something else. Um, well, it, it, it depends what that something else is, and there may be a place for it, too. 
even in our spiritual practice, we have to learn to work with the mind rather than against the mind. So I'm reading a book, and let's say I really want to go, you know, to um, hear a concert or something like that. I mean, it's not spiritual, um, but it, it might be where you're at. And there's something to be said for, well, sometimes you just got to do what, where you're at, and even if it's not the ultimate thing and so forth, and, and then go on from there. So I'm reading a book, and the book says, you know, going to that concert is really illusion, you know, in so many words, and you're hearing that. But, you, but I really want to go to that concert. So what's real, to follow the book or to follow the, or go to the concert? It's kind of like what you're asking, in a sense. So let's say, I'd say, you know, well, you know, both are real, in a sense. The text is not saying something that's wrong, hmm? but what your own present reality is saying is, is, I'm not ready for that right now. I need to go to the concert. And so, well, like, like if a student comes to me and says, Swami, you know, I was really thinking of uh, going to Alaska. And, uh, uh, you know, I say, you know, are you coming to ask me? Or, you, you know, if it's good? Do you really want to know if it's a good idea? Or do you just want me to say yes? <laughs> you know, so if I can see, he doesn't really want to know what I think. Hmm? He just wants me to say yes. <laughs> so, I might want, so I think, okay, so that's his reality. So I don't say, no, it's not a good idea. I think, let's see, do I know anybody in Alaska? Is there anything I could have him do in Alaska that would connect him to what, you know, the ashram and what we're doing here and what's important? And I think, well, I know a guy in Alaska, you know, here, you know, give him this book when you go there, you know, go ahead. And I try to turn that into something that is connected with ultimate reality at the same time catering to his or her immediate, you know, reality of where I'm at. And this is an example of what I say of kind of like working with the mind rather than just trying to go against the mind. Sometimes in, it's mentioned in the sixth chapter of the Gita, yukta hara viharascha yukta sapna bhavodo yoga bhavati dukaha. If you, you have to be regulated in eating, sleeping, and you're like this one, in recreation. So there's a place where like, okay, meditate. I have to step back from my practice for a minute because that's my reality. And just to deny that, it would be very forced and counterproductive. Hmm? Does that help to answer your question? Something more? Go ahead. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you could. I mean, the book talks about something beyond itself. Hmm? Uh, you know, everything's not in the book. The book can hardly do justice to the, to the experience, and the experience is out of the book. The book is only giving you some ideas, hmm? but you have to put them in practice. So you could put them in practice. In a, it's not the. It's, it's not a. It's not a. Uh, yoga is not a reading course, so to speak. But that may be part of it. What does it mean to be in the world to you? Well, I 
We have to do that, yeah. Everybody has to do that. So we would like to interact with them from the perspective of our practice. If the people are, not, not that you go and tell everybody, practice yoga, you know, but I mean, if people want to ask what you're about, then you, you share with them according to the level of their interest and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But your experience may become very profound. Hmm. Such that others, can, it may become very profound, so that others, such that others can't fully take advantage of it. You may need more quiet time. Hmm? There are people that live in caves, practice yoga, and they're not antisocial, hmm? necessarily. But something happened to them. Hmm? They saw something. You know, human beings face so many problems. Because of education, culture, prejudice, belief, subconscious mind, and many other factors. Working against depending the direction of, of that energy, against the so-called free will. I hear people say, I have free will. I know, I know how you say And then there is conflict. In one side, we want to do what we want, free will. But in other side, there are many different kind of energies or habits, or you can say addictions, especially from the own mind, our own belief yeah. working mm -hmm. against free will. This is the question. What really mean free will, and how did this free will work? Well, that's a huge philosophical question. I don't think we'll <laughs> we'll solve it tonight, but, or this afternoon, this morning. But <laughs> but I appreciate it. Uh, and the fact is that yes, um, let's take the doctrine of karma for example, which is a prominent aspect of the Gita and of yoga and so forth. The idea being that with actions, we accrue reactions. Hmm? And those reactions come in the future, some of them, in the form of a predisposition. So our mind becomes predisposed to act in a certain way in the present because we've acted in a certain way in the past. Hmm? Um, and so the question is, where is it, does this... Uh, end up at the, at the cost or the loss of any free will, because if I'm if I'm free to act, but I'm so predisposed to act from my previous based on my previous actions, I may not be able to really meaningfully make a choice what to another option, and I'm locked in, and free will is obscured and so forth. Well. I would say to that that the more materialistic our life becomes, the more that becomes a fact that our previous acts and the sangskaras, the tendencies that, that we're, we're born with that, that come as a reaction to those in this life are guiding us, are leading us, are driving us, and, and so forth. They're, they are part of the chemistry and the electric makeup of the of the brain and so on and so forth and 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 it's it's going on mechanically without 
the exercise of free will. However, in the karmic doctrine, there obviously is a place for free will, otherwise it has no meaning whatsoever. And you can't say good karma and bad karma. There's no one to choose. So choice is, is, is very much part of the karma theory because karma means action and reaction, so there has to be some volition to make a choice. Even if you are moved by your previous actions in the form of reactions to act in a certain way, you're still choosing to do so. And of course, there is the opportunity, however, uh, however small of a window, to make other choices. Uh, and, and sometimes, for example, I may have a very strong tendency to act in a certain way, and so I continue to, to, to make that kind of a choice, so to speak, that almost makes free will seem meaningless and out of the picture. But somebody else more powerful of an influence may come into my life as well. Hmm? And on the basis of that, then the opportunity to choose again comes to the fore. So there is free will in uh, the yoga uh, uh, philosophy. And indeed, if the self that we're talking about is not a unit of will, then it's no, really no different than matter. Hmm? It's not inert. To say it is consciousness, the self, means to say it is not inert matter, which is to say it has will. And of course, if saintly person of sadhu comes into our life, then in a very big way we have an opportunity to make a choice that is obviously not a product of our karma. Hmm? That's coming from outside of good or bad karma. That's a divine intervention. So we have a, a, an opportunity that's been presented to us, and it's powerful, it's forceful, forceful enough to cause our sanskars, our tendencies and desires to recede to the background and make a choice and start to change. So uh, the free movement of bhakti, so to speak, for example, coming through an agent of bhakti into our life really in a very meaningful way uh, gives vent to uh, the free will of the, of the self, of consciousness. The free will, where is located? It, you, are, you, you are free will. You are, you know, God is free will, and you are like a spark of God, so you have derived free will. God's will is completely independent, and ours is derived. So, so even if I want to make a choice, I still require some sanction in order for it to happen. So that's a, it's a compatibilist point of view with regard to determinism and free will. In other words, in, in Vedanta, we have a compa we, there's, there's compatibility between some overriding determinism and within that some free will. These are complex philosophical arguments, but I appreciate the question. I can't do justice to it entirely. But with that said, um, are we meeting again this afternoon? Evening at what time? So at that time, I was going to ask for, quest for questions from anybody. So why don't we stop now, and we can ask questions in the evening. Any questions, we'll do our best to answer. Thank you very much.